You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Kaspersky Lab appears to have burned a U.S. operation. Facebook has some other governments to answer to now, and Facebook CEO Zuckerberg finally discusses the Cambridge Analytica affair in public. Lawsuits and calls for regulation are shouted up. Best Buy shows Huawei the highway. And we have a brief wrap-up of the Billington International Cybersecurity Summit. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, March 22, 2018. Kaspersky Lab's description of slingshot malware is said by anonymous U.S. officials to have burned a long-running Joint Special Operations Command operation, that's JSOC, against the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. JSOC is thought to have abandoned the intelligence collection effort. Kaspersky did not identify the U.S. as the operators of slingshot, That's consistent with the company's typical practice. They usually stay away from attribution to particular governments. But they did call Slingshot an advanced persistent threat, which has come to be practically synonymous with intelligence service nowadays, and suggested that it was the work of a nation-state. Slingshot is thought to have been active for about six years. It was designed to pull large volumes of data from infected systems. It's an interesting case for several organizational reasons. CyberScoop, the publication with whom U.S. officials spoke, notes that it's the first known case of a cyber operation being conducted by Joint Special Operations Command. JSOC is not to be confused with U.S. Cyber Command or any of the service cyber commands. It is a component of U.S. Special Operations Command. The disclosure is unlikely to win friends and influence people in the U.S. government, which has kicked Kaspersky products out of its networks because the intelligence community assesses them as representing a security risk. Too close to Moscow. Kaspersky is indeed headquartered in Moscow, but that's not the closeness the U.S. government objects to. It's upset about the prospect of the company's security products being used to collect on behalf of the Russian intelligence services. Kaspersky is challenging the government's ban in U.S. federal court, alleging that it's been subjected to an unconstitutional bill of attainder. Maybe, but the slingshot report is unlikely to tamp down the zeal of government lawyers defending the ban. Facebook's legal and reputational trouble continues. German authorities have joined other governments in requesting explanations from Facebook over the Cambridge Analytica data use scandal in which the company is embroiled. The whistleblower who drew attention to what Cambridge Analytica was up to says that Facebook knew about but chose to disregard that company's use of Facebook data. Yesterday, Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg broke his public silence on the affair. Heavy snowfalls aside, the sighting does not mean four weeks of winter, but most observers think his statement was too little and too late, and a good lesson in how not to respond to the public about a very public incident. 
Reports to the contrary, Zuckerberg did indeed on CNN say he was sorry the whole thing had happened and promised to do better with customer data. He framed the incident as being fundamentally about third-party apps, and it appears that Facebook's response will initially at least concentrate on reining those in. Zuckerberg indicated his intent to testify before U.S. congressional panels investigating the company's data protection practices. So far, however, testimony has come from elsewhere in Facebook's leadership. And predictably, shareholders are filing lawsuits against Facebook. The data handling incident has severely hit the company's value in the markets. The whole Cambridge Analytica affair continues to prompt calls for more regulation of social media, to include efforts to stifle fake news, which some see as posing a war risk, as well as the now familiar prospect of opinion manipulation. How this might be done in a way that respects, for example, freedom of speech, is unclear. Some think they see a model in 19th century newspaper reforms, but that's not clear either. William Randolph Hearst is unavailable for comment. We recently reported a new high watermark for DDoS attacks, thanks to the memcache vulnerability. The attack, reported by Akamai, topped out at 1.3 gigabits per second, over twice the size of the September 2016 attacks associated with the Mirai botnet. Chad Seaman is senior engineer on Akamai's security intelligence response team, and Lisa Beagle is a senior manager for security intelligence at Akamai. They join us to describe the record-setting distributed denial-of-service attack they recently experienced and helped mitigate. DDoS attacks are not uncommon. We see a lot of them every day, thousands of them a quarter, and they're being leveraged by all kinds of different actors for different reasons constantly. The previous high watermark for us was, I believe, 628 gigs? 623. 623 gigs uh, in September of 2016. That was beat just the other day with the 1.3 terabit. Lisa, can you sort of take us through what happens when something like this starts to come in? What, when do the alarms go off and, and what, how do you kick into action? So that obviously depends on the posture of the customer themselves. So you have some customers that are always on the network. You have some customers that have on-site mitigation. You have some customers that make a business decision to be alerted internally and then route. And this last particular instance, this was an entity that had a protocol to actually monitor their environment independently and then make that decision. So that's what happened was there was a learning mechanism that occurred by the time they had actually identified what that anomaly was. There was a level of degradation um, and then it takes a few minutes to process that BGP change and for it to obviously propagate upstream. By that point, uh, we had already deployed the ACLs that were required. So we had already identified what the attack was. It was obviously an exchange with the end user based on what they were seeing and what we had been seeing prior to so that we could harness the traffic and then immediately mitigate the attack. And, and so what are your recommendations for folks to, to, in terms of mitigation against this memcache attack? Hold on. Sure. <laughs> no, no yeah. that, that is the advice. Oh, hold oh. on. <laughs> I see. Hold on. I mean, Please hold on to the bar. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think when you think about attacks in general, right? So it so memcash included, I think one of the most important things that any organization can continue to do is understand what their internal environment looks like 
And some of that requires internal dialogue with regards to security and network teams so that folks understand not only what the vulnerabilities potentially could be, but they understand what assets they have and what process and protocols are in place as it relates to those potential events and that they practice them. So I think what happens is, is we all get caught up in the you know, the newest, latest, greatest type of attack. And when things seem to be dying down, which technically they're not, but at the same time, there's not this huge insurgence of press and attack activity, they become complacent. And it's at that point that they become vulnerable to potential impact. And in terms of, of this arms race, this, this sort of cat and mouse game that, that's being played here, um, are the defenses against DDoS uh, growing in, in parallel? Is, have we reached the point where defending against a DDoS is fairly routine? It depends on the DDoS, but yeah, I mean, it, it is fairly routine at this point. I would even say that at times it's somewhat boring. The attackers have their, their handful of tools and they continue to just beat everything to death with them. You know, it's it's just another day in DDoS. Uh, it feels like a lot. Yeah, I think I think from our perspective, I think from an end user standpoint, they may have a different perspective because again, it, it's based on what they have in place, what their appetite for risk is, what that posture is, and it also does depend on the actor, right? So if you have an actor that understands an environment, the attack itself could become a little more complex. Now, can we handle it? Absolutely. That being said. Could there potentially be impact to that end user based on the knowledge from an attacker perspective and what their posture is? Sure. Um, So again, that's where it becomes very important that they understand what is potentially vulnerable or at risk or what they can have as it relates to an appetite for risk within the environment and then making decisions based on that. That's Lisa Beagle along with Chad Seaman. They are both from Akamai. Major U.S. electronics retailer Best Buy has stopped selling Huawei phones, evidently responding to security concerns about the Chinese company. This is seen as a significant blow to Huawei in the consumer market. The Billington International Cybersecurity Summit met yesterday, despite the early spring blizzard that hit the eastern seaboard. The policy leaders who spoke showed striking agreement that cyberspace had become normalized in policy and planning, It's no longer an exotic technical area accessible only to specialists, but a domain where nations, businesses, and individuals lead much of their daily life. Discussions noted on the way in which like-minded nations, emphatically not including Russia, by the way, were increasingly working collaboratively, both within alliance structures and bilaterally, to accept and manage common risk. In this context, information sharing has clearly become far less aspirational than it has been, U.S. DHS Assistant Secretary Jeanette Manfra called for nations to begin thinking of cybersecurity as a matter of international digital public health. She also didn't neglect deterrence and the imposition of consequences. The Assistant Secretary explicitly cited last week's round of sanctions against Russian individuals and organizations as a response to ongoing Russian operations preparing a campaign against the U.S. power grid. There was also some ambivalence about innovation on display. Several speakers cautioned that novel technologies represented risk as well as opportunity. As we mentioned on yesterday's show, Singapore's Commissioner of Cybersecurity, David Koh, was particularly clear on this point, saying, We exploit the technology and run the risk of being exploited ourselves. Mr. Koh holds many other titles, too many to list here, 
and he explained the reason for the many hats he wears. Should something go spectacularly wrong, he said, quote, I can publicly resign in ignominy and then quietly move to a new job I already have, end quote. Good for you, sir, and congratulations, too. Mr. Ko was yesterday the inaugural winner of the Billington Cybersecurity International Leadership Award. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Joe, welcome back. Hi, Dave. So I got a, a message from one of our listeners on LinkedIn, and uh, it's a common request. Someone who is uh, getting into cybersecurity, has a career in another line of work. Mm -hmm. uh, this person happens to have an MBA already and is taking some classes to get into cyber, but they're wondering... When they get their new degree, uh, how are they going to head out into the employment world? And it struck me that, well, you folks over at Johns Hopkins are in the business of preparing people to enter the business world. Right. So what advice do you have for someone in this situation? So in that situation, that's kind of different from our students. Our students are generally uh, coming right out of a bachelor's program and coming mm. right into our program. It is a full-time, immersive, three-semester, very intense program. Right. Uh, so... During the summer, we like to see all of our students take an internship. They have to complete a capstone research project. Uh, it requires pretty much all of their time. So I'm assuming that this person, or and, and there are lots of other people in this position too, where they have full-time jobs that are right. currently available. 
my advice is that you know assess your situation. Are you in a situation where your company is paying for your master's degree in cybersecurity or your your second bachelor's in cybersecurity? Mm-hmm. Uh, if so, then look within that company and see if there's other positions in that company where you can kind of move laterally but get into the career field now. Hmm. If if you're paying for it yourself, then you have a lot more freedom, right? You can look outside of the company to try to move into the career field. Even even just having a couple classes under under your belt is good. Being able to say on your resume that I'm I'm pursuing a master's degree in in cybersecurity or a second bachelor's or even a first bachelor's in cybersecurity and I'm doing it part time. Uh, getting into the field is going to be the the most important part of of the career. Is actually making that first move. And and one of the points uh, you made uh, we were chatting beforehand was that. Uh, don't discount your previous experience as a, a sort of a connection to your cyber knowledge. Absolutely not. That your your previous experience is is invaluable. You're going to go into this field, in the cybersecurity field, coming from a, a, a different background. You're going to present a different way of thinking to the team you're going to be working on, and that is going to be. Don't underestimate the value of that. It's going to be very valuable to the team. And and so, how do you go out and uh, market that particular? You know that aspect of your career. If you're out, I, I, I suspect you know some people feel like, well, I don't have a computer science degree. You know, I, I uh, maybe I'm at a disadvantage to some of these folks who are coming through pure cybersecurity all the way. Right. Well, one of the, one of the biggest hurdles that cybersecurity and any any kind of IT or programming people face is they just don't have the the what I'll call real world experience. Mm. I mean, they have real world experience in in whatever their skill set is. But they've never been on the other side of of the uh, of the computer screen, so to so to speak. So right. they may not have the understanding of the business processes that are involved with whatever it is that you that is done. A great case in point is, uh, you know, I actually did a lot of business process analysis early on in my career uh, to help people automate the process. And you go into these to these business uh, these folks who do this business. And the process is actually very, very complex. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, of or gates or if-then-else statements that you have to account for mm-hmm. uh, within, within a business process. A lot of engineering people just don't understand that. They, mm-hmm. and, and that is probably the biggest value that, you, that you'll bring to the table, the familiarity with the process. So if I'm a hiring person, I, I, I guess th- these folks should uh, look at uh, that previous career it isn't something that holds them back. That that could actually be a benefit because if I'm that hiring person, I'm going to say, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm not going to have to worry about with this person. They've been out there. Right, exactly. I'm not going to have to explain to them. You can't just tell them not to do that because they need to do that. I see. Whatever that may be. Yeah. All right, good I'm insights. That is a variable here, I guess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> good insights, Joe, as always. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, 
Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.